Workers are getting back to work, but are the best days of television behind us? Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Woolard here with Motley Fool analyst Bill Barker. Bill, how are you today? I'm well, thanks. Well, you know who else is well? I think are the Hollywood actors. Uh, our season of strikes, and it has been a season, it's finally winding down. SAG AFTRA, they reached a deal with the studios last night, which means Content Engine, it's going to start ramping back up again. I saw a report last night on Deadline that said the strike caused Southern California around $6.5 billion and 45,000 entertainment jobs. What do you think about the long-term ramifications of the strikes? One of the things I'm wondering is if companies have learned maybe to be sort of cleaner about their content and and will probably cut costs more. What do you think? Well, I think you're going to have to wait a little bit until the actual terms are released. Um, yeah. Until they are ratified by the union membership, they're not going to be uh, given to us. And uh, so, a more intelligent response to that will have to wait. But yes, I mean, <laughs> that's not the only response that you can have on this show. So, <laughs> uh, no, the AI uh, was a part of all of this and uh, a big. Part I think uh, probably uh, the uh, corporate level was uh, thinking gleefully about uh, how many uh, people to cut out of the equation uh, with AI, uh, and I think that uh, the, the terms of the uh, contract uh, came up and sort of at the right time in order to address this before uh, AI gets away from uh, the acting community. So I think they've. Inserted, uh, you know, their negotiations at the right time uh, when it's evident what will be coming, but it's not too late to change the equation before it, it works dramatically against uh, the actors. Yeah, yeah, definitely a wait and see kind of thing because it's not going to stop AI innovation, but it may. It it feels like a stopgap to me, but we'll see. We don't know yet. I mean, I think in terms of uh, both of these strikes, both the writer's strike and the actor's strike, it's given a little bit of a pause, uh, and and some plans um, have had more time to marinate on exactly how much content and and how much to spend on it. It is determined. There's plenty of content out there uh, during the strike. I don't know if if you noticed it. Uh, there's there's too much stuff to catch up on in the various cues and recommendations of friends, and unless you're a, an addict to late night uh, TV, and that's been back for a couple of months now with the the uh, uh, writers back. Uh, but there there's enough to watch that that uh, there they could go on strike for a couple of years, I think, and there would be more than enough to watch during that time, with the exception of you know, the new stuff that you need some feeding of new stuff, but in comparison to what's already out there, it's, uh, it's a different equation for the viewer than it used to be. Yeah, it's, it's very different than, than the last major strike. Well, I want to move on from that into talking a little bit about earnings, because we had earnings from Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery over the past couple of days, which kind of give us insight into that connected TV streaming universe. And one of the things I'm thinking about is that we've got this tale of two ad markets, because 
on the one hand, you had strong connected TV and online results, uh, Netflix, Alphabet, Meta, even Snap and Pinterest, which you know was was kind of surprising to me. But on the other hand, you had Warner Brothers Discovery and Disney both saying you know traditional television advertising was was a weakness. So. I'm wondering if the page has been turned here, and as an investor, is is it worth paying to t- paying attention to TV advertising anymore? I don't think you'd want to be a long-term investor in TV advertising uh, for anything that that isn't streaming a, a single source like uh, you know what's on the networks and things like that. So. The advertising model is getting better and being tried in more ways on the Netflixes and and other um, streaming services. Uh, so it's picking up there. Obviously, the amount of time that people spend watching streaming services grows, uh, and and it comes at the expense of the the network TV and the the cable networks. So. You know, you might get a little bump in an election year uh, with yeah. certain channels getting, depending on how exciting the race is. Uh, I can certainly see a, a few uh, channels picking up uh, quite a bit, uh, but uh, the rest, I think it, it's going to be to the degree that they have sports. Sports is uh, doing very, very well, and the rest of the entertainment, uh, creativity, and dollars seem to have migrated to streaming services for the, as as have the eyeballs. Yeah, indeed. Another thing that I think is interesting about the streaming services, it, with Netflix, we heard it with Disney and with Warner Brothers, is that these aren't primarily U.S. businesses right now in terms of where the the subscribers are coming from. It's increasingly becoming uh, a global global content businesses and really starting to see a lot of a uh, lot of growth in India, where the where the population is booming and the middle class is growing. As we think about valuing these businesses, I'm wondering how to consider the the U.S. parts versus the global parts, because traditionally I think of these businesses as like very dependent on what I might be watching, but that is increasingly not the case. No, the U.S. is a little bit more than four percent of the global population. Obviously, uh, much wealthier than than the midpoint uh, for global population, but the uh, population is growing in India. India is, uh, you know, the, now the number one country in terms of population. And if, of course, they've they've had vast international business. Uh, you hear about it more when China's uh, feathers get ruffled about some piece of content and what happens because of that, and the ways in which Disney may or may not have. Change some of the things that they've developed over the few years, uh, last few years, uh, because of how important the Chinese market is to their uh, theatrical releases. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a huge part of the business, the international part. Other thing that on the Warner Brothers Discovery call that uh, David Laszlo, the the CEO, said is that it's international and it's gaming. So I think this is interesting because you've got. You've got Netflix talking about gaming too. Uh, Disney has gaming too. But then you, on the other side, you have Nintendo. They're getting into producing movies, like they're having a live-action Zelda movie. So it seems like you've got this sort of IP kind of blur happening, probably a little bit because of the whole Barbie thing. But would you rather see the gaming movies get into the gaming companies get into movies, or the streaming companies get into gaming? 
Well, if it's uh, directed at me, uh, I'd rather <laughs> see the gaming companies get into uh, movies and and series. I think of uh, The Last of Us on uh, HBO Max. Yeah, or good show. Just Max, as some people now seem to call it, being a very successful game. I had no idea it was a game before I was watching it as a series, and it's a limited time. Whereas the model for Taking the IP of Warner Brothers, say the um, you know DC uh, superhero characters, and, and putting them in a live game that you can tune into all the time, uh, and that the business model is inherently uh, how how much can we get kids uh, to a degree, but uh, you know older people as well addicted to playing a game. Uh, for very, very, very long periods of time. And the answer to that is you can do it. And uh, that is a very successful stream of money, uh, as most addictive things are. They can be turned into good cash, whether it's the coffee that I'm about to have another sip of, uh, or gaming, or, uh, you know, sugar and, and various things that people get addicted to. So, in terms of get, getting more addictive games out there, I don't think that's a net gain for society. Uh, it's a net gain for Warner Brothers to the, the degree that they can pull it off. Uh, but I think that you know they also uh, have participated in you know a good story uh, in game form being brought to a new audience and in. in you know, the Max uh, platform, and, and that's that's a value. Yeah, and I think there's a difference between the kind of immersive blockbuster games that come out and people spend, you know, days, weeks sort of exploring the, the universe, like when, when Take-Two Interactive comes out with a big game or something like that, versus the more sort of like casual, maybe you play it on your phone, off and on kind of gaming. So, I think I think that some of that is about deciding which kind of gaming companies these uh, these entertainment companies want to be. I think, you know, Warner Brothers has, uh, is in the process of developing a few games that are more in the always-on, join, play-for-hours uh, mm. type of thing. And that's... Uh, that is a potential source of, of good revenue, and uh, I'm not blaming them for pursuing that. Uh, but the question was, what I want, <laughs> yeah. and, that, and that's that's what I want: more stories that I have no idea uh, about that are on platforms like the gaming platforms <laughs> being translated into a, a you know something that I use, which is my remote control. <laughs> Exactly. Well, staying on Warner Brothers Discovery for a moment, I think David Zaslav is becoming one of my favorite earnings call CEOs because he's he's very direct. He's got that New York accent, that New York energy. He said it's all about cash flow. Who has it and who doesn't? And I think he kind of like wrapped the table at that moment. So, true or false? And if so, is that true for entertainment or for all businesses? There's a stock phrase in in law. Uh, that if if the facts are on your side, you argue the facts. If the law is on your side, you argue the law. And if neither of are on your side, you argue like hell. But <laughs> this is this is just like is cash flow on your side or is growth on your side? Growth is not on on their side, so they're not pointing. Zaslav is not pointing to look. The growth is what I want to talk about today because there's nothing to talk about. Right. It's look. Let's look at the cash flow. 
it's maybe not growing. In fact, it's it's being pared down uh, quite a bit, I think, based on the most recent uh, quarterly call. But there's real cash flow there. The multiple that the market is paying on this cash flow is not very high. Uh, so that's what you want to argue if if you're directing shareholders or potential shareholders to something they might like, it's look at the cash flow that we've got and how little you have to pay to be invested in it. Mm-hmm. And the the fact that uh, you know growth will have to come at some point in the future, undetermined at the moment, um, that's not something to highlight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is a company that's that's also dealing with paying off a lot of of debt and still integrating all of its various pieces together. So it's it's a little different than 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 some of the other companies out there. It's still it's still new in some ways. Well, I think um, to go back to the question, you know, is this true um, for all businesses cash flow? Uh, and I've sort of uh, translated it into a cash flow versus growth. They're both. Always something to pay attention to for right. investors. There, neither one of them is uh, independently a reason to buy or not buy a stock. Yeah, I want to sort of talk about the value of sports. Um, I don't know how much of a sports fan you are. There's, there's certainly sports I watch and, and sports I don't. Uh, on Disney's call, uh, Bob Iger he talked a lot about the value of ESPN as a standalone product. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, would it be sold? Is like the NFL going to take a stake? There's all this back and forth on it. And I was thinking about that and sort of comparing that with the New York Times and uh, and the Athletic and their earnings because. The athletic is having uh, great growth, but you know, still operating at a loss. Do you think robust sports content kind of pays for itself? And you know, it would ESPN be spun off? Would it have value? Would it be able to pay for itself? I would have great value. Uh, I think that it's the number one provider of, of sports, uh, you know, on on streaming and and um, you know, on on the cable. Uh, platforms and Disney is positioning it for evaluation as an independent business by breaking out the numbers of uh, ESPN itself versus right. you know the the other parts uh, of uh, you know of their their streaming and their um, cable businesses. So I think that they have uh, benefited from it, uh, and it might be something that they can. Spin off in a way that is good for shareholders. Um, it's it's married somewhat to the rest of the Disney business, but not all that uh, smoothly. I think in terms of you know what the effect on the parks or on the effect of their other platforms, Disney yeah. Plus and Hulu, and you know why why does ESPN need to be a package with those two uh, if that's not your cup of tea? So I think that. Uh, it, it's going to. My guess would be at some point it's going to be separate from Disney, and it's going to go for a great price. Yeah, I mean a great price for Disney. Yeah, yeah. The the, the package annoys me a little bit because I recently had to get uh, ESPN Plus, and I got uh, Disney Plus and Hulu, which I did not have before, and. I didn't necessarily want them, and that's something that Bob Barger talked about on the call. Is that you know people really he thinks that there's a growing audience for people who just just want ESPN. Uh, yeah, yeah. There are millions upon millions of people that just want to watch sports 
<laughs> mostly guys is my guess. I haven't done a deep dive on that, but uh, mm. not entirely. Not entirely. Not entirely. Not, not entirely. saying that, but you know, I think probably more guys uh, willing to just sit there and watch sports all day and all night. And some at some point, we'll find out how many of those there are and and what the price tag for it for it goes for. Uh, because I do think that you know the number of people that pay for ESPN on their their cable package and have no idea how much they are paying for the ESPN portion of the package uh, and would not otherwise spend that much money to have ESPN as part of their basic cable or premium cable packages is 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 very real. But uh, Disney would like to hold on to or Disney's future, you know, whoever ends up owning it, if somebody else owns it, would like to keep 100% of that rather than split it with the, the cable companies. Absolutely. Thanks for breaking it down with me today, Bill. Thank you. Ricky Mulvey with Motley Full Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360-degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado, tested the accelerator just a little bit, and felt the performance and agility It's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. It's also quiet and comfortable. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. I'd like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport. The analysts you hear on the show have a whole other day job, providing premium coverage and recommendations for the Motley Fool's suite of stock investing services. We're giving our listeners a discount on Motley Fool's flagship service. It's called Stock Advisor. If you're interested in more analysis from our team, two stock recommendations per month, and access to Stock Advisor's full scorecard of companies, visit www.fool.com slash MFM discount. Tim White and Tim Byers recently met with Informatica Chief Product Officer Jitesh Guy. They had an in-depth conversation about the history of data management and how AI is changing the game. Those uh, of you who've been longtime members may remember Informatica and its products for uh, ETL, the old extract, transform, and load technology for data integration. It's a new company and it's a different era and reported some pretty good earnings this week. Lots of efficiencies here, beating some guidance. Jitesh, where are we now with Informatica? What's what's the latest on, on the company and, and the just just reported quarter? Perfect. Well, Tim and Tim, really great uh, to be here with the with the both of you, uh, and uh, connecting with all the all the fools worldwide, me included. Big fan. To your question, Informatica this year is thirty years in the making. We were founded thirty years ago, so you're exactly right. And we've been exclusively focused on data management, enabling 
digital transformation, data, and analytics. You can imagine in this very vibrant and exciting space, there's been many generations of technology. Uh, there's been you know, what you described as ETL to build data warehouse appliances and data marts for analytics and reporting. Then there was this whole wave around Hadoop, which was going to change everything and, and, and big data. Uh, and, uh, you know, recognizing and learning from all of that uh, and driving simplicity, the next wave that really came was cloud. Informatica has been a leader through every one of these technology disruptions. In fact, Informatica has led in innovation from a data management standpoint in the ETL world, as well as in the Hadoop world, and now as, a, as, a, as the cloud data management uh, leader. Uh, th through that, you can imagine we were a perpetual license business model. We are now a cloud subscription business model. And you're right, we've, uh, you know, we're powering our customers' digital transformations, and, and it shows. We had uh, great earnings. We beat on, on all metrics, top line and bottom line. Uh, our cloud grew 37% against a guidance of 35% uh, year over year to 550 million uh, in cloud ARR. And our subscription business grew 17% year over year to 1.08 billion. So, uh, you know, we're very excited about what we're doing and, uh, and our customers are equally very excited about how we're powering their uh, analytics, data, and, uh, and digital journeys. So Jitesh, one of the things that's happened over the last 10 years, as you said, transitioning from big data, is this idea that we have to massage data and get it into a format that's really easy for folks to consume. And now it's getting it ready for AI to consume and getting it in a format that is super easy for AI to consume. Uh, and I think that's a place where Informatica clearly could play a big role. On the other hand, you have companies like Amazon that are saying, just throw your data into an S3 bucket and it'll magically get consumed. You won't have to transform it at all. We can just work with it directly raw with Redshift and, and other tools. Uh, what do you think is the, the truth there? Is, is, do we have to do a lot of massaging or are we going to be able to work with it raw with AI advancements? Well, so... First and foremost, we are a, a core part of our strategy is to be independent and neutral. What does independent and neutral mean is we work with all data wherever it sits. It can sit in AWS, it can sit in Azure, it can be in Google Cloud, or Oracle Cloud, it can be on-premises, it can be in your tenant uh, within a specific hyperscaler, it can be in Snowflake, Databricks, wherever. We innovate and partner deeply. We have deep technology partnerships with all of these hyperscalers. We equally partner and bring joint technologies to market together for our shared customers. So from that standpoint, why do the AWSs, the hyperscalers of the world partner deeply with us? Because they recognize that while they have warehouses and data lakes and lake houses, you need trusted data in those warehouses, data lakes, lake houses for trusted outcomes, analytics outcomes, reporting outcomes, as well as AI outcomes. That's where Informatica comes into play. That's what data management is really all about. 
data management, the, you know, the, the migraine level problem that data management is solving for our global 2000 customer base is really helping them be more data driven. What does that mean? Enabling users of all skill sets, technical and not technical, easily discover and understand wherever data is. It could be in an S3 bucket, it could be in Redshift, it could be in Microsoft Fabric or Snowflake or wherever. Easily help them discover where it could be in an ERP, in SAP, it could be in Workday or other SaaS uh, and PaaS services. Not just discover it, but easily connect, process that data for whatever purpose, reporting, analytics, AI, regulatory compliance. Ensure it's of the right quality so that it can be trusted for a specific use case. And you know, oftentimes there's an immense amount of fragmentation within an enterprise of where data is. There, you know, most enterprises have multiple clouds, multiple SaaS, multiple PaaS services, et cetera. And oftentimes they want to bring together a single view of something business critical, a single view of a customer. Well, a customer looks different in Salesforce versus Jira versus Service Cloud. And we're able to leverage our AI and build a one complete single view of, uh, of, of Tim, of Jitesh. And we'll be able to tell you which Tim and what the view is. And that's what we call a 360 view of a customer or a patient. All of it needs to be governed and we deliver governance capabilities to ensure that our customers can democratize all of this data, be data-driven, enable AI through data management. That is data management. That is everything we do to help organizations drive their digital outcomes. So I wanna, I'm glad you called it a migraine level problem because that's something that Tim and I talk about all the time. I want to see if I understand you correctly here, Jitesh, as I think about use cases. The way you've described it there is there's a, there's a couple of key elements here. Informatica is helping you go out and search all of your data sources. Then it's bringing those data sources together. And what it sounds like is you're doing some enrichment of that data. You're not just integrating it. You're bringing it into something that is well understood. You called it a single view of a customer, and then you may be enriching it for some particular purpose. You said things like analytics. So am I understanding you correctly? A customer comes to you and says, I've got six data sources, and I want to be able to run a cost analysis of my most valuable customers. And then you come in and say, great, okay, what are those six data sources? And what are the attributes that we need to call out in that data? Is that a way to think about how Informatica operates with a customer? It's a great use case. It's one of many use cases. Got it. Uh, the, okay. The, the way I simplify, you described it perfectly. Is you know you look at an enterprise, and uh, and and you'll notice that. There's data everywhere. There's data in spreadsheets. There's data in you know email systems. There's data in PowerPoints. There's data in databases and warehouses and lakes. There is more fragmentation than ever before. And what we what we do is we scan an enterprise and through metadata, which is data that describes your data state, sure. we make 
your enterprise data searchable, discoverable, kind of like a Google for the enterprise in concept. So you're looking for customer data, we'll show you all the SaaS applications databases where we know customer data to be. And we know it to be there because we've applied our AI to metadata, our AI ML engine Claire, to help organize all of these data sources. And then you can do any multitude of things. You can bring data together for customer churn. And we will help you connect to those sources, bring the data together, process it, and get it ready for customer churn analytics, as one example. We'll bring data together to help you understand your suppliers so that you can manage your supply chain at Unilever for various materials to build Dove Soap, as an example. Uh, we will help you drive uh, deeper customer experience, Banco ABC Brazil, is uh, bringing together trusted data, training their AI and ML models on it 50% faster than they used to do it because of our productivity. And these AI and ML models are now enabling them to process credit approval applications 30% faster than they were previously, a reduction in credit approval times for their customers, delivering, exceptional customer experiences. At the heart of all of this is data and managing data, processing it, discovering it, cleansing it, trusting it, and building authoritative views that you can then train AI on, that you can then run reports and analytics and operate your business on. Okay, so one of the things that I heard you say there was that there's an efficiency improvement in how quickly all of this can get processed and how much effort it takes the data engineers to get all this pulled together. And part of that is because of the AI that's built into uh, the current versions of Informatica Cloud. And I think that that's really interesting. And I wonder, it, it, competing though, you've got OpenAI and other generative AI-based solutions, which are kind of taking a different approach than, than Claire, your AI has in the past. Do you think there's a point at which all of this gets, you know, swept under the rug and just uh, generative AI magically does it all and we get down to like a zero effort? We can just, you know, sort of point chat GPT at our data sources and it does everything and there's really no need for this sort of quality and uh, other transformations you're doing? Yeah, great question. And uh, we truly live in exciting times as a technologist a lot has changed over the last 18, 24 months with, uh, with large language models. And we're all actively, as an industry, across the board, whether it's data, analytics, AI, um, SaaS businesses, looking at the awesome power of large language models and how we drive productivity for our customer base. So from that standpoint, super exciting. Having said that, you know, Chat GPT built on GPT-4 and beyond is really has really been trained on the internet. Mm-hmm. Our customers are the enterprise. And so what we uniquely build, what we uniquely bring to our customers is highly complementary, whether it's Llama 2 or GPT-based chat experiences or uh, uh, you know, bedrock AWS-based experiences or, or, or barred with Google, et cetera, et cetera. What's unique and complementary that we bring to bear is we enable our customers to effectively use their enterprise data. So now you've got, you used ChatGPT as an example. By the way, we're partnered with all of them, OpenAI, with Azure, with AWS. 
uh, and leveraging some of their AI equally within our data management cloud uh, as part of Claire. From a customer standpoint, really what we're doing is we're taking the best of ChatGPT, the simple prompt-based experience, but enabling this prompt chat-based experience to answer enterprise questions specific to their organization, to their customers, to their employees. That's where enterprise data married with this awesome large language model set of technologies trained on the internet is highly complementary. And what we bring to bear is that structured data within the enterprise to enable our customers to answer really specific, smart enterprise data related questions. That is what we pioneered as Claire back in 2017 and leveraging large language models we've launched as Claire GPT. It's a simple chat-based experience that lets anybody do data management and get data insights. Ah, very interesting. So you have brought the chat experience as well as the traditional sort of large GUI experience that Informatica is known for. Very much so. Very much so. We, we have Claire Copilot is, uh, uh, is something we launched as a data management assistant to help you build data pipelines faster, to help you build data quality rules, to help you build master data models to drive uh, governance, compliance, etc. And then on top of that, within our intelligent data management cloud, we've now launched Claire GPT, which leverages large language models to understand data management intent. You type in, connect to Salesforce, aggregate all customer opportunities uh, on a monthly basis, standardized date to month, day, year, and load it into Snowflake. That would have taken a data engineer, a data quality steward, a data analyst, uh, you know, a few hundred hours across a few of them to just coordinate. Within three sentences, we'll just do it. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Willard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.